Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America Podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome to the Great America Show. Good to have you with us. Our politics becoming increasingly complex. The role of corporations in national politics, long established, but what is new is the effort of corporate America, at least much of corporate America, to support Marxist ideology, whether it be in the form of Black Lives Matter, or providing support for so-called DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Dr. James Lindsay is a critic of the so-called woke culture that is capturing the imagination of so many in corporate America. He's written a book entitled Race Marxism, soon to be published. Dr. Lindsay joins us now to take up the appropriate responses to DEI and critical race theory in education, the workplace, and government. It is great to have you with us. And how in the world did we get to this point? <laughs> critical race theory, uh, suddenly uh, ESG is not enough. We've got to have new levels of uh, direction in corporate America. And from every quarter, it seems, uh, the, the power structure, the establishment, uh, and the world as we knew it is under attack by what some call Marxism. Uh, how did we get here? Well, there have been three major formula or pieces of the formula, I guess, that got us here. One of those is that this has been brewing in academia for at least 50 years. These ideas uh, started in the late 1960s and early 1970s and were being mainstreamed into academia at the time. So the goal was to teach not students, but teachers, future teachers. So to indoctrinate future teachers, to indoctrinate future professors so that they would then spread this idea to more and more and more students. You could say that's operationalizing the field if you want to put it in kind of Marxist language or strategic language. Secondly, there was a gigantic cultural push. That cultural push came on the back of what we saw out of academia over the last 50 years after you got enough professionals that went into media, that went into law, that went into different professional fields. All of a sudden, it becomes pretty easy to start taking advantage of cultural phenomena and interpreting them in terms of, say, critical race theory or whatever else. So three big things that popped up when Barack Obama was elected president. Sadly, many people responded with some racism. Uh, and that's the core thesis of critical race theory. Later, you have the Black Lives Matter movement kind of launch into the scene in 2014 and 15 after the, after the Ferguson shooting. Uh, and there you have, uh, again, mainstreaming this idea that there's a secretly racist now police force. And then when President Trump ran for office, it was racist, 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 racist. And they used critical race theory to say only a racist America could elect uh, Donald Trump. And they use that narrative very, very effectively to drive people crazy and to believe that America was secretly racist and critical race theory becomes the tool. So that's two out of the three components. And the third is the ESG, which is how they manipulated corporations into backing this, promoting it and making it look like they were responding to market demands when in fact their bottom line at the level of the valuation of their stocks or the, the ability to participate in being a publicly traded company depends on compliance with that S. And that's ultimately how we got here. What is elusive, at least to me, the incipient point this began, uh, it's a perfect storm. But I, I am curious, this doesn't look like a natural storm of any form. Uh, this is not spontaneous. Uh, this is a seeded cloud that's been unleashed, whether it's ESG and environmental social governance, uh, two areas, by the way, which most corporations have the least to do with on their uh, checklist of uh, stakeholders. It's, it's remarkable that this, this confluence of ESG, corporate social responsibility before that, of course, 
now we have sustainability at all costs. And instead of looking to the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable, which they do quite enough of, corporate America is now looking to the United Nations for guideposts and values. Most Americans are completely and utterly unaware of what is happening. That's right. They're also looking to the World Economic Forum and the International Monetary Fund, which right. are funneling these bags of cash to back these things. Now, as far as where this all kind of began, I think there's a combination between organic and inorganic elements to it. I think it began with with neo-Marxists who are actually communists that were operating in the 1960s. And you can read that explicitly in, say, Herbert Marcuse's very influential writings from the 1960s, where right. he says, we have to find the radicalizable student population and we have to get the ghetto population. That was his words for uh, the black radicals. And we have to figure out how to make them into, he said, the new working class, meaning in the Marxian sense, the new radicalizable revolutionary class to overthrow society. Because he said the working class has been stabilized. He actually admitted capitalism works. It's making a prosperous society, but we could have a so much better society if we would overthrow it. And we have to look for that revolutionary energy, he said. And so that's really where the seeds of this were laid. And then what you see, whether it's through you know corporate social responsibility or, or whatever else, is you see this 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 ideology slowly colonizing other bureaucratic forms. It turns out that a lot of the uh, program of, of social equity, for example, which is, of course, their brand name they operate under with a lot of it, came out of directly the field of public administration on the back of um, – of a book called The Administrative State. So this whole idea that you're going to colonize things that happen bureaucratically and turn them in this direction has been part of a a kind of long march through the institution's plan that has found what's been advantageous to it and colonized it and turned it into this. The biggest example of that in schools would be social emotional learning, which started out as a way to deal with troubled kids and turned into a Maoist education program masquerading as a way to deal with troubled kids. And how pervasive is uh, all of that in uh, in our schools, our public schools? It's virtually ubiquitous. It's it's the leading edge of so-called educational theory these days. It's in virtually all of the schools. You pick a state like North Carolina, which is kind of famously purple, and they've even passed legislation in the state of North Carolina to make it so that Teachers who are engaging in social emotional learning cannot be held responsible for the fact that what it entails is doing uh, unlicensed psychological therapy in an unregulated environment on children. And so this is this is deep. It's virtually ubiquitous. It is the hot thing that's everywhere. But again, it's this is the key thing where it feels like this has all been seeded. It has been seeded but it was seeded through kind of a parasitic action, a thing called social emotional learning that helped troubled kids got colonized a number of years ago, turned into transformative SEL as they call it and got turned into something different. And this is why, whether that was with the corporate uh, social governance responsibility govern in governance policies or projects, all of these things that were noble efforts to try to improve the environment in which Americans and other Westerners worked were colonized by neo-Marxist ideas and basically taken over from within. And they're now everywhere. Virtually all of our institutions have been flipped over into this. And the behavior you see from, say, the Democratic Party re reflects that, that they think that they now have enough control over all institutions to do whatever they want without having to worry about accountability. And we see expressions, explosions, if you will, of the presence to, of all that you're talking about, for for example, in Loudoun County in Virginia, uh, all of the headlines that are being driven around the, the country, uh, some awareness of that. And at the same time, uh, we are looking at the, the role of school boards suddenly being attacked. I suddenly we get an idea of what's going on. There is an effort to transform this country from public education to state education. Uh, parents are no longer considered parents or citizens. They are simply, uh, you know, uh, hold the hands of those children and put them to bed at night. The state will take care of the rest in the minds of these school teacher unions, uh, these uh, these uh, lame uh, front organizations like the school board uh, advisory association that's been created 
to be nothing more than a handmaiden to the efforts of the National Education Association and the Federated Teachers, the two biggest unions and uh, teachers unions in the country and a mighty powerful political forces. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, the there's a lot of people don't know that literally the first, by the way, diversity manual that was ever written was at American University in 1973. And this manual was actually commissioned, paid for and distributed by the NEA back in the 1970s. So they've actually and this is an explicitly you think, you know, Robin D'Angelo last year or the year before with White Fragility came out and then it's all, you know, there's no neutral. You're either racist or anti-racist. You know, whiteness has to be reduced. This was all written in the 1970s under the direction of the NEA. The teachers unions have been at the bottom of driving a lot of this very radical change to our country for a very long time. And you're also correct that it's a transformation to a state education. They no longer want to think in terms of American citizens who have rights as Americans. The new buzzword that you hear again and again and again, especially from the education activists, is global citizen, which, of course, is preposterous. There's no such thing as a global citizen because there is no such thing in should not be such a thing as a global sovereign to which you can be uh, subject as a citizen. And so this is the new mentality that they're trying to bring in through the school system. But when you look at the indoctrination program that's being run through our schools already, all the way K through PhD, not K through 12, all the way through the top, you look at the indoctrination program that you already have going on and they're saying, oh, well, we're going to bring that down to three and four year olds now, too. Uh, we're going to start even earlier. You can really start to get a taste of what they're trying to do. They think they own your children. They think that it's their right to make them into global communist citizens and to indoctrinate them with the relevant, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's queer and gender theory, whether it's climate justice, whether it's health equity, whatever these kind of buzzwords around all of this happen to be, it's all the same thing. Equity means socialism, justice means communism, and that's what they're trying to indoctrinate from the very beginning. I was shocked to see what happened over the last few years, the pace at which these corporations moved. It moved at a pace I did, I did not imagine they could in expanding the power of their HR departments, human resources departments, the old personnel departments. They're now political offices within the corporation. Uh, they have corporations have, of course, their public affairs offices in Washington, D.C. to lobby. They have HR departments to manage uh, politics and the standards of the day, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's uh, ESG, whether it is uh, corporate uh, responsibility. Uh, these these corporations have taken a turn that is definitive. And I think uh, right now you would have to say that corporate America is left wing in its behavior. Uh, your thoughts? I think that, well, I think that you're obviously correct. And I think most people who are starting to wake up to what's going on around can see that there are two primary components for why that is. And one of them is the ESG game. The other is that we have very bad jurisprudence that is followed from the civil rights acts that is increasingly bent toward that disparate impact that different racial groups, for example, or, or identity groups have different outcomes on average by group, not at the level of individuals, that disparate impact can be taken as evidence of discrimination. And that's a, if you've read where Ibram X. Kendi, the critical race theorist, says that the solution to inequality is to pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment. One of the two things he says that amendment should be fundamentally based on is the idea that differences in outcomes should be proof of discrimination. So this is the situation that we find ourselves in until that until the court rules that disparate impact is not enough to have proof of discrimination. We're going to find ourselves caught in this trap as well. On the side of uh, academia, uh, we're watching now a number of universities, a number, some 121, the last report I saw, that have dropped their requirement for the ACT test or the SAT test, uh, or both, uh, because they believe it is somehow um, racially discriminatory uh, and puts minorities at a disadvantage and are literally moving away from uh, objective testing uh, of knowledge. Uh, it, it's a, a deeply troubling uh, uh, moment in higher education uh, of all places. Yeah, that's actually a move. This has been done in the past. 
uh, Mao Zedong did this in China during his Cultural Revolution, because what it allows when you remove objective standards, obviously, just to be clear, that's not the case in China now. They have extremely rigorous testing. Right. They brought that back when after the party seized power, because if you get rid of objective testing and objective standards for getting in, everything becomes subjective. So now your diversity, equity and inclusion or personal personal struggle statement or whatever it is that you're supposed to submit that reveals your politics that, that that tells whether or not you're going to be a compliant party operative or not becomes uh, at least higher, if not the highest ranked idea or uh, item that brings you into uh, being admitted into the university. So that only party operatives are even getting in and only pot party operatives are getting out after they've been more thoroughly brought into um, party politics. This isn't new. This isn't new to the world. Mao did this in China, used it to affect parts of the Cultural Revolution, ruined China utterly as a result, and then later realized, oh, well, we need to bring standardized testing back. This is very much like how the Soviet Union thought that physics was a bourgeois Western project up until the West got the nuclear bomb, and then all of a sudden physics was very important for communism too. Uh, this is the kind of mistake, if you want to call it a mistake, that they make over and over and over and over again in uh, these kind of broadly Hegelian Marxist kind of programs is let's let's make everything subjective until it's a catastrophe. And then we'll go back to objective standards at the pleasure of the party. It's difficult to imagine a country that has reached this point, having the energy and the drive uh, to to reverse course. What is your sense of the immediate future? The immediate future, I think, is going to be rocky. I have a very much more optimistic view than I did, say, in January. Um, the truth is that people up to this point have not realized what's at stake. But I'm actually, as I travel around the country from city to city and talk to people all over the all over the nation, I find out more and more and more that people are very rapidly waking up. What I see on the internet reflects this. I see the, the Biden administration try to put out a new narrative. Oh, we're going to do this gender ideology thing, or we're going to do this feminism thing, global feminism thing, or whatever it happens to be, pronouns day from the State Department, or you know whatever it is. And I see these new narrative shifts not sticking very well. And I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that, yes, it actually could happen here. And their complacency is falling away as they start to realize it. What I believe is the case is that they needed both top down, which they have in the Biden administration right now and in many state governments, but they also needed the bottom up support. And because when you press down without having support from the bottom, the bricks just fall out the bottom. And I think that's actually where we are. They're dropping bricks out of the bottom of their, their plan as fast as possible. We call this red pilling on the internet these days. They're red pilling people left, right, and center. And I genuinely mean that on the left as well. If you look at Virginia, you right. see what's happening with the scandals in education. So I think what's going to happen is that we have to understand that this, this regime, the, the Biden administration knows that it has crossed the Rubicon. It knows that it has it is pushing something extraordinarily unpopular. It's going to be become more and more unpopular. So it only has a few options available to it. But the main thing is that whatever direction it goes is going to continue to double down. What happens at the end of this, I can't tell you, but I think they're going to continue to try to force these, uh, whether it's vaccine mandates and passports, whether it's going to be climate mandates or passports or whatever else. I think they're going to try to force this on people and force this on people for a while and then I don't know what happens after that, because people I don't think in the American Republic are going to take it uh, much longer. They realize now what's at stake. They realize when Alexander Solzhenitsyn warned, we didn't love freedom enough. So we deserved everything that followed after that. They are in that story and that it, they are going to have to love freedom enough to, to do something about it. What can uh, everyone do in your judgment to help uh to help reverse this tide? Well, the, the shortest answer is to not participate. They This requires a little bit of discernment. You have to kind of be able to tell when you're being fed the narrative and when something might be legitimate. But I would advise everybody be very suspicious of the narrative and then to try to predict why are they telling us this and what do they want us to do? And then don't do that. Uh, it's very important to civilly 
resist, to say, no, I'm not going to participate in these systems of lies. Now, if you want to do more than that, it depends on your temperament and your talents. One of the things people can do is if they are inclined, they can work on that discernment part. They can learn more about the ideology. They can learn more about ESG, for example, with the corporate world. They can learn more about DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and the critical race theory. The regime does not like transparency. They cannot stand sunlight it embarrasses them. It stymies their plans. People won't go along with it. The The one thing they can't stand is people outing them for what they're doing and then uh, standing up and saying no as a result. And we still have the power to do that. We still have the power to speak up. They're trying to close those doors on us, but they haven't. Now, maybe gaining that, studying some specific subject like that and speaking up isn't your path. Well, then you should fall into whatever kind of support role that you can fall into. Maybe it's that you're going to help build community around in your neighborhood. You're going to you're going to get people together to talk about the issues. You're going to bring people together to talk about what this nation means and where we want it to go. To start re-knitting the fabric of America from the grassroots is something anybody can do. And I'm not when I say support, I mean you can also find people who are speaking up about this and you can back their program, whether it's sharing their materials, you know, donating to their causes, whatever. Those are things that you can do if you don't want to take it on, but you can also just do your part to bring your local ne- your, your local neighborhood together and to get people to where they're starting to talk about this because it turns out that that is much more effective if you look back all through the 20th century how do you fight communism how do you fight communism this is what they say over and over and over again and it stayed communism out of the united states and out of the west for the majority of the century all you have to do is be very discerning and very clear and to make strong stable communities so that uh, they can't encroach on your values and knock you off of your base. One of the points I insist on on the podcast is to make it possible for people to understand how important community engagement really is. Of all the political races in the country, of course, the presidency remains the most important. But every citizen in this country has greater power over their local communities and their and their city and townships, and they have to be engaged. One citizen can make so much difference in such a quick, quick amount of time. Uh, Citizenship is to be taken seriously in this country. And unfortunately, uh, too many of us have stepped back from that responsibility. I want to say to you, James Lindsay, I really appreciate your being with us. Uh, A fascinating discussion. And and James Lindsay, by the way, uh, is modest enough not to have mentioned his a podcast, which is one of the places where you can go to to learn more about each one of these critically important issues, these cynical theories, as he styles them in his new book. And uh, we're just delighted to have you with us. Hope you'll come back soon. We appreciate everything you're doing. Dr. James Lindsay. Thank you so much, Lou. We will continue in just one moment. Stay with us. There is so much going on each day in this country. Sometimes it seems impossible to keep up with events, the cross currents, the ensemble of colorful and unscrupulous characters in our body politic, and particularly located in Washington, D.C., who stir a a constant stir of uh, a sordid brew of corruption and constant uh, disinformation and deceit. It's clearly a fact certain that this is without question one of those periods in American history that will be studied by historians and economists for decades. And there's no doubt that just as uh, the presidency of Joe Biden has sped up our nation's descent into further divide and decline, Mr. Biden and his family will be featured prominently in those studies to come years distant. But we don't have to wait for those laggard historians to better know the Bidens better or the swamp they've long inhabited. A terrific book has just been published, a captivating, compelling look inside the Biden family that you will find both, well, spellbinding and stem winding, as they used to say. The book is entitled The Laptop from Hell, and the author is one of the country's very best political columnists and one of my very favorites, the New York Post's Veranda Devine. Miranda, congratulations on the book. Welcome to The Great America Show. And we want to recommend your book to everyone in our audience. A fantastic read, uh, amazing accounts of the Biden family. Uh, 
Thank you for your investigation and beautifully written account of the sordid and revealing contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, your thoughts about first the reception to your book, which has been a sellout. It's obviously a blockbuster and bestseller. Thanks so much, Lou. Um, yes, look, I'm, I'm pleased that it's done so well. And I think it shows that there's a real hunger out there for, um, I guess, the truth of, of about Joe Biden and his family and um, this influence peddling operation that they've been running um, since his early days as a senator of Delaware, and, uh, which he internationalised when he became vice president. And, um, you know, we at the New York Post uh, published uh, a series of stories uh, last year, just three weeks before the election, right. uh, based right. on our investigation at that point of the laptop. We just published what we could verify in emails, um, which showed that at the very least, Joe Biden had lied to the American people during the campaign when he said that um, he had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings, that he knew nothing about them. Uh, and, you know, there's ample evidence uh, in the laptop and also uh, in <clears throat> a couple of other sources of information that I've tapped into as part of that jigsaw puzzle, um, which indicate that uh, Joe Biden met lots of Hunter Biden's overseas business partners. He met them in Beijing. He met them uh, in his own uh, residence in Washington, D.C., in, at the Naval Observatory. Uh, he met them from Mexicans and Kazakhstanis and Ukrainians and Russians and Chinese. <laughs> uh, he met them at a dinner in Cafe Milano in 2015. And I think, you know, a lot of these politicians get caught up um, because of the cover-up as much as anything else. And really, uh, Joe Biden's campaign and Joe Biden himself um, did not uh, tell the truth to the American people about his involvement in um, this influence peddling scheme that his son and his brother were running. And uh, I think that, as much as anything, is going to be a problem for him going forward. And one of the problems uh, for him uh, was certainly the, dis the discovery that the laptop was indeed Hunter Biden's. Uh, the reporting of the New York Post was spectacular. <laughs> Uh, it was exemplary it, uh, uh, in, in terms of the kind of journalism we expect all of the national media uh, uh, to present to the body politic, the public, uh, and, and to serve their right to, to know. But what happened was, uh, as uh, I'm sure most of our audience recalls vividly, the New York Post got shot down and shut down on social media. Uh, as uh, for simply telling the truth and reporting the truth. Uh, and at the same time, big tech uh, made it very clear uh, who's in charge of the flow of information in this country uh, when it can when it can go after the New York Post and to the New York Post. Uh, great credit. Uh, you guys stood strong uh, with behind your reporting and your reporters. Uh, it was a wonderful moment for journalism, but a terrible moment for the country. Yeah, thanks, Lou. And look, there are a lot of unsung heroes, I guess. I mean, the New York Post, uh, my editor in particular, Cole Allen, who brought me over here um, from Australia, um, you know, real tough guy. And he uh, was determined that this was a story that had to be told. And then, of course, Emma Jo Morris, brilliant reporter um, who wrote the stories, broke the stories, um, did an amazing job and did her due diligence. Um, and then, of course, Tony Bobulinski, um, another unsung hero and a real patriot, a Navy veteran, um, he came forward before the election. And, um, you know, it, it went, when it, the, the post and the laptop were being traduced as Russian disinformation by uh, the likes of former CIA and director John Brennan and James Clapper and Leon Panetta and Michael Hayden, who wrote that scurrilous uh, propaganda letter uh, to Politico saying that the laptop was, and therefore our reporting was Russian disinformation in their expert opinion, having not looked at the laptop at all. Um, and uh, when all that was going on and Tony Bobulinski stood up firm and he said, no, uh, this is all correct. Um, he gave us a tranche of his emails, uh, the contents of his phones, um, all his documents, and they cross-matched 
with the laptop, with those emails, a lot of overlap there, but also some fresh information. Um, and you needed that to, to fill out the puzzle. And then a third piece of the puzzle, again, a couple of other unsung heroes were um, uh, Republican Senators Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, who also were traduced by the Democrats as uh, peddling Russian disinformation. But what they did was a, a really forensic investigation into uh, Hunter Biden, uh, Burisma, the Ukrainian corrupt energy company uh, and corruption. And they uh, got their hands on a whole lot of treasury um, reports, these suspicious activity reports that banks are supposed to file with the Treasury Department uh, when, um, you know, suspect money comes into right. the country, for instance, from a Russian oligarch or some sanctioned individual. And there was a lot of that kind of money coming in uh, to the uh, to the bank accounts of um, certainly people associated with Hunter Biden, his business partners, Rosemont Seneca, and so on. So they brought the receipts there, which again cross-matched with material on the laptop and in the Tony Bobolinsky material. And you need those three pieces really to um, fill out that jigsaw puzzle. And then, lo and behold, you see this really shocking um, template of um, influence peddling corruption, call it what you will, tens of millions of dollars uh, flowing in, particularly from the Chinese, but from Russia and Ukraine and Romania and Kazakhstan, um, you know, the, Serbia. I mean, there were there were really hardly any place uh, on planet Earth that Joe Biden uh, didn't have carriage for when he was vice president that uh, didn't get a visit from um, the sort of Biden family grifters. You know, as you, as you describe what is fact, uh, and the web of corruption uh, at the center of which is the president of the United States and has been for a very, a very long time, approaching a half century. Uh, we have, as your book so, so well reports, evidence, fact to deal with, and an FBI that has not, has not moved has refused to, to talk about the investigation, to deliver uh, on what has been now, what, a two-year investigation at, at least. And we have a, a national media that refused to report these facts that were available, by the way, not just to you, uh, but to a, a number of uh, reporters who simply stepped back and let that story go away, or were told to do so by their bosses in corporate uh, media. Uh, your thoughts about why suddenly, Bobby, as you talked about uh, in the book, Tony Bobolinsky is a hero. Mm. He's burst upon the scene, uh, and he then, like, uh, he's simply like a supernova. Uh, he burst on the scene, and then there was just darkness, silence, and no more reporting. And then there was an election. And I think in large uh, measure, that's the reason that Joe Biden prevailed uh, in that election. Your thoughts? Yes, well, it certainly was one of them. Uh, you know, the the uh, big tech, um, those uh, unaccountable uh, oligopoly of uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, definitely put their thumb on the scale. I mean, you can only call it Russian in, um, election interference. Uh, they immediately, within a couple of hours of our story going live, they blocked it, they censored it. Uh, Twitter even locked the New York Post's account um, for the next two weeks until just a few days before the election. Uh, and, you know, the New York Post is the fourth largest audience in the country. Um, it's the oldest continuously published newspaper in the country, um, founded by Alexander Hamilton. Uh, this was a big deal, what they did. And uh, when they did that, it really gave the signal to the rest of the media, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, who, uh, you know, the anti-Trump media who were all in the tank for Joe Biden before the election, it really gave them the fig leaf that they needed not to cover the story. And then um, a couple of days later, the, uh, you know, John Brennan letter came up and that was all the excuse they needed. And, you know, there are still to this day Americans who believe that the laptop was made up, it's fake, it's Russian disinformation. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's been verified, um, you know, every way to Sunday. Uh, the emails have been verified with other recipients of the emails. Um, as I said, the overlap with um, 
the Grasley Johnson report with the Boblinsky material, with Bevan Cooney, another uh, now a jail, one of Hunter Biden's many jailed former business partners, also delivered some of his material to Peter Schweitzer and Matthew Tymond, who other journalists who shared it with me. So um, and and Hunter Biden himself. I mean, this has been out for now more than a year and the Bidens have just tried to ignore it. And Hunter Biden wrote um, his memoir, which was all about his crack addiction, which he uh, has uh, now kicked, he says. Um, And uh, I think that was in a way to neutralise the stuff that was coming out of the laptop about, you know, all the porn and the addiction and so on. Um, But, uh, you know, even even in that sense, he he misled people about a lot of parts of his life, including the fact that, you know, he got this stripper pregnant, there was um, a uh, a paternity suit, Uh, she had to sue him to get DNA test to prove that he was the father, which he was. He he said in his memoir he didn't even know her, he did Dedicates book to his other children, doesn't mention this child who's now about two and a half. And, um, and you know, he had this, I mean, he has a child um, and it's somewhere in Arkansas and this poor woman um, had to had to uh, sue for, for recognition. But he says in his book that he can't even remember the encounter, but the laptop shows that they had a relationship going over several months and he used to smuggle her into his office building at night and, uh, you know, he and there's just evidence galore and they'd been text messaging and so on. So, um, you know, he wasn't straight, obviously, in that uh, memoir and it's, it's just a pattern with the Bidens. Um, I don't think there's really nothing that you can believe that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth. I mean, he's spent his entire life, I think he's really lost the ability to tell truth from fiction. He tells tall tales. He's a fabulous. He plagiarises. You know, a lot of mythology is in in his family history. I've I've gone into a little bit of that in the book. Um, But it really, um, I think, in the end, uh, I'm hoping that people understand from seeing this, it's all factual, um, it's all laid out there. I've tried not to inject, um, you know, opinion into it. I've just tried to do a straight report. It's shocking enough as it is. You don't need to embellish it. Uh, and and I just think that from the book you can see the true character of Joe Biden and you can also compare the reality of what has been said and the documents and the receipts um, that I've produced from the laptop and these other sources uh, with his public statements. And um, I think that's where he'll get tripped up. And Miranda, I've got to, I've got to compliment you further, specifically for the audience, uh, to understand that what Miranda has done in this book uh, is take some of the most uh, complex uh, sets of facts and events uh, and currents uh, in our body politic and, and report them to you, uh, to all of us uh, reading the book uh, in a comprehensible fashion. As a journalist, I was taught early on, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to be comprehensive, which you have been. It is quite another to be comprehensive and comprehensible, uh, which you have uh, brought together uh, beautifully. And it is a, a, a work of art uh, journalistically. I, I just can't uh, compliment you enough on that. Uh, as one who has also been covering that story, uh, you know, I, I wish I had you as my daily guide uh, <laughs> in real time during that period. Uh, the corruption of the Biden family is clearly established, uh, and it's wide, it's, it's broad, it's deep, and it uh, centers around one man, and that is the man who is president of the United States now. And the money that flowed to Hunter Biden the largest uh, sums of money that uh, traveled to his pockets uh, were from the communist Chinese, the same people that President Biden calls our competitors, uh, holds a two and a half meeting with the president of uh, China, President Xi, uh, and won't tell reporters what they discussed, won't hold a press conference to take up the substance of it. Uh, this is a level of both uh, uh, of opaqueness and uh, a, a, a character that is uh, highly suspicious, on, at least I'm suspicious of his character, uh, and especially given the corruption uh, that has uh, followed him for his entire career. Uh, how are we to trust a man on China who has had this level of involvement, uh, corrupt involvement with the Chinese and his own family? 
Well, you can't, uh, you know, and he was involved in that. Um, and, uh, you know, in his, you talk about his meetings, he's had four meetings, virtual meetings with President Xi since he's been president and hasn't mentioned Wuhan. And in the last, that that marathon meeting that they had most recently, um, within hours, China was buzzing Taiwan with their war plans, which shows you the level of disrespect shown by President Xi to, to Joe Biden. Um, and I also think I... President Xi was trolling Joe Biden by calling him my old friend because Joe Biden, of course, <laughs> he used to boast about what great friends there are. I have passages in the book where he just has ranted and raved to people boasting about the hours and hours that he spent with President Xi more than anybody else in the world and uh, how important that makes him and what great friends they are. And then most recently, now that, um, you know, being good friends with President Xi is not so popular with the American people after the pandemic and, and uh, you know, the evidence of their predatory behaviour, um, he's now saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not a, a friend of, of Xi's. So, um, you know, President Xi has his number. Uh, he has spent hours with Joe Biden and over the years, and he knows his character, and he knew that when Joe Biden arrived on Air Force Two in 2013 with Hunter Biden in tow, what that meant. That's crystal clear to the Chinese. Um, they they have a, a system of a sort of family politics where, um, you know, the elite families enrich themselves. Uh, they don't do it directly. Um, they have family members are enriched and paid off and bribed. Um, and that's just the way they do business. So when Hunter Biden came along with Joe Biden, it was crystal clear what was going on. And um, 2013 was a really important time for America and its allies because China had become newly aggressive in the South China Sea, was militarising uh, those right. islands, and was also um, in the throes of ripping off, stealing America's intellectual property. Um, and uh, Joe Biden came away from that meeting empty-handed on behalf of America. Um, but Hunter Biden came away with 10% of this investment fund, which, according to documents on the laptop, by 2019 had $2.5 billion of funds under management. So it was a very lucrative meeting for Hunter. And there's also evidence that Joe Biden um, met in a private room and shook hands in the, in the residence that they were staying in in Beijing with uh, Jonathan Lee, who was Hunter Biden's new business partner in this venture. Um, you know, one of the many times he's met uh, Hunter Biden's overseas business partners. And the thing about the next, the big deal that he, he did most recently with this uh, Chinese energy company, CEFC, is that um, it's not just an energy conglomerate. It's actually the capitalist arm of President Xi's Belt and Road Initiative, his imperial push into the world, rest of the world, and um, you know, which is detrimental to America's interests at the very least. And this was the Biden family for the last two years of Joe Biden's vice presidency. The, the Hunter Biden and his partners were doing work for the Chinese Communist Party, for Belt and Road around the world. And uh, I have a scene in the book. Uh, where Hunter Biden, this is in 2017, a couple of months in May, uh, after a few months after his father stepped down as vice president or ended his term, and uh, Hunter Biden's in a restaurant in New York, in Manhattan, and he's pounding the table very angry with uh, a man called Director Zhang, who was the 2IC, Communist Party official of China, but also the 2IC of uh, CEFC, this energy company, and uh, Hunter's furious. And he says, you owe my family $20 million for the work that we've done for you for the past two years around the world. Now, that work wasn't really work. It was basically using Joe Biden's name to open doors and to get the Chinese into various countries like Romania, for instance, that they wanted to uh, buy up big in. And, um, and, and Joe Biden was part of that. He was vice president, but the money was not going to flow until after Joe Biden stepped down. And that was the point of Joe Biden's meeting um, with Tony Bobulinski, or two meetings with Tony Bobulinski in um, uh, one of them was at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles in uh, 2017 after he'd stepped down um, because he was, Joe Biden was vetting 
Tony Bobulinski, who was going to formalise this joint venture with CEFC and the Biden family. Um, he was the CEO of this. He was going to put proper due diligence into it and so on. He was a, you know, a successful businessman in his own right, a, a man of a good reputation. And so they were bringing him into this and he just found himself caught up in this complete nightmare. And, uh, and so, you know, as we said, he was a hero for coming forward. And, you know, the book uh, would be incomplete if it weren't for um, his assistance. The question becomes still, uh, again, after all uh, two years, do you think that Hunter Biden will be subpoenaed? Do you think there will be consequences? We, we know it took two seconds uh, for the FBI to, to, uh, uh, <laughs> to begin an investigation uh, of, of Don Jr. and others in the uh, Trump administration and around the administration. Uh, what, do you have any hope at all? that there will be a substantive investigation of, of Hunter Biden? Um, I don't know. All I know is that the FBI has had a copy of the laptop since December 2019 when John Paul MacIsaac, uh, the owner of the Delaware repair shop where Hunter Biden abandoned his waterlogged laptop, um, he, he, after a few months, um, from April 2019 when he got the laptop, to December 2019, he held on to it, then he gave it to the FBI, um, didn't hear a peep from them after that. And that's when he tried a few Republican congressmen who didn't respond to his emails. And then he found Rudy Giuliani and then Rudy Giuliani um, found us. So um, I, 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 they've had it for a long time, whether they know the import of the material on it or not, I don't know. They'll know if they look at the book. Um, and. And then we also know that the Southern District of New York is also intimately um, uh, involved or, or has investigated parts of um, Hunter Biden's network because um, they um, arrested Patrick Ho from CEFC um, at JFK. Um, they also were investigating the Indian tribal bonds scam that um, had Devon Archer convicted and Bevan Cooney and a couple of other associates of Devon Archer. Hunter Biden uh, managed to um, evade any problems with that. Uh, he said he wasn't involved. Um, they accepted that. Um, but, you know, they certainly were uh, looking at his emails and uh, his lawyer had to go through and give them a whole lot of information um, from his records. So the Southern District knows uh, a little bit about what's going on there. They know about the Patrick Ho case. Um, so, and it's certainly in their jurisdiction because these uh, Chinese uh, billionaires, these princelings who were doing business with Hunter Biden um, were taking all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars out of China and buying Manhattan real estate. And uh, there was the $54 million um, penthouse apartment of the limestone Jesus, so-called, um, on, on the west side, the you know beautiful a building full of oligarchs and billionaires. Um, and Hunter Biden used to go over there and, um, and uh, Chairman Yi used to cook him lunch. And uh, so, uh, you know, the Southern District, this is all happening within their their ballywick. Um, so it's a fantastic investigation for them to undergo. So you would hope that they're doing that. I mean, that's the most powerful um, investigatory or law enforcement organisation in the country, um, supposed to be, uh, has a history of um, being independent um, and uh, honourable. Um, I mean, I find it rather strange that everybody who's had a hand in exposing um, the Biden family has had an FBI raid. I mean, I know five people who've been raided by the FBI, including Rudy Giuliani um, and, uh, uh, you know, Project uh, Veritas, James O'Keefe, um, Victoria Tensing, um, Joe right. DeGenera. Um, you know, these people have been raided by the FBI. They've had all their... Um, their devices seized. Uh, Rudy Giuliani had his cloud spied upon for a year. Um, so, uh, but they're they're being investigated. But I'd like to know where the other, you know, the other side of the coin is being investigated. Um, you know, we're told that there is an investigation into Hunter Biden and into Jim Biden, his uncle Joe's younger brother. Uh, several investigations and tax evasion allegations, um, foreign agent um, registration. Uh, impropriety allegations and other um, allegations. Um, if you look at the laptop, there's a lot there um, for investigators to look at. 
and they do have Tony Bobolinsky has handed over all his devices to the FBI back uh, last October. So um, they have the same pieces of the puzzle that I had and a lot more power to subpoena people. So if there's any will, um, they they should be able to get somewhere. Uh, and but you know we, I mean they're always slow and they have to be thorough. So I'm just hoping in my heart of hearts have a slice of optimism that they there are good people somewhere in the swamp who will do the right thing. I I join you in that hope. Uh, unfortunately, I you know I have to take a look at uh, what we've experienced uh, mm. over the course of the past. Uh, six or seven years in particular. And it's clear that one political party is protected and the other is not. Mm -hmm. uh, as you make clear in, in the book, uh, it, it's, uh, it is a shame that uh, the January 6th committee is uh, uh, issuing subpoenas left and right, uh, but no one wants to get to the bottom, it seems, in the oh, Democratic standard. Party uh, to, to this clear-cut case of corruption at the highest levels of the United States government uh, and uh, the family of Joe Biden. It's unequivocal, it is, it is evident, uh, and there is also every, every signal that there will be protection afforded no matter what from here through. Uh, I, I mean, people, uh, associates of Hunter Biden, uh, are, some of them are dead, uh, some of them have been charged, uh, several of them. Uh, yet Hunter Biden uh, is painting away and uh, and selling his merchandise on canvas. Uh, that's that's unseemly. That's it's uh, intriguing, uh, and it's also it seems to me appalling. This is an appropriate point to say. Uh, we're going to. I'm going to give you the last word, and I I, I think everybody would like to hear your your thoughts on that? There certainly seems to be, you know, a dual system of justice in America. And uh, there was such a, a frenzy from the left and from so much of the media to um, get rid of Donald Trump. He, he was, uh, they threw out all ethical standards um, out the window uh, just to, to get rid of him. And, and Joe Biden benefited from that because um, they would, you know, they would do whatever it took to make sure that he won that election. And uh, I, I think suppressing the laptop was part of it and, uh, you know, changing um, the rules, election rules, especially in battleground states under cover of the pandemic was part of it. Um, and uh, I, I think that for the American people, as they see what a disaster Joe Biden has been as president, and they're starting to understand that his character is very different from um, how it's always been portrayed, uh, I think Afghanistan was the red pill for a lot of people and um, a lot of concern that, that you know, if, if we head into a, uh, a real crisis, I mean, Afghanistan was a taste of it, but a real crisis um, under Joe Biden, his judgment is appalling and he surrounded himself with people who don't appear to have any ability uh, to, 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 you know, control what's going on. They seem to defer to him, believe it or not. Um, and no one's really in charge. Who is in charge? I think it's a very frightening time for um, America and for the world. I mean, the leader of the free world is somebody um, of, who's compromised uh, with China and with Russia. And those, you know, those countries are predators and they see America weak and they're coming in for the kill. I have to say, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely, Miranda. I thank you for uh, for spending some time with us today. And I compliment you again and thank you again uh, for your uh, just extraordinary book, <laughs> The Laptop from Hell. Uh, it has, uh, it, it is just a terrific read. Recommend the book to everyone uh, watching and listening. And I appreciate your time and wish you all the very best. And please come back soon. Miranda thank Devine. Thanks so much, Lou. Great to talk to you. Very generous. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.